You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, everybody, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I'm Eve Patton, I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub. And any of you who haven't been with us before, uh, this is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And the Arts and Humanities gets wider and wider every day in its definition of what it encompasses. Uh, but one of the things that has become embedded in our programs for almost three years now is the Centre for Resistance Studies. Uh, and uh, I'm very grateful to my colleague, Balaja Poor, who founded the Centre for Resistance Studies uh, and has run the program brilliantly. And I'm very grateful that this evening he has invited a speaker who I know will talk very directly to some of uh, the Centre for Resistance Studies primary concerns and interests. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Anton de Beeks from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Uh, he is Emeritus Professor of History, Ethics and Human Rights at Groningen. Uh, and that nexus of subjects that he covers, I think, uh, will give you a clue as to his interests, a wide field that uh, crosses, I suppose, uh, all of the terrain that uh, Nietzsche identified between the use and the abuse of history. He covers the relationships between history and ethics, between history and human rights. He addresses the perennial problem of censorship. He looks at the work of historians as activists. Uh, he looks at moral philosophy and its role within history. And I think in very interesting ways for our own um, preoccupations with uh, the Irish past, he looks at processes of memory and loss and recovery. And in particular, at that very difficult balance, I think, between, in the context of, of history, between the rights of the living and the rights of the dead. Um, you, many of you, I think, will know uh, his books. I'm not going to list them all. There are far too many, but of course... Uh, from 2008 and 8, Responsible History was a landmark intervention in this field of the moral philosophy of history. Uh, and more recently, his 2018 book, Crimes Against History, picked up many of these concerns and themes about how we use and misuse history as uh, scholarly practice. Uh, Antoine is also the founder since 1995 and coordinator of the network for concerned historians, and we can uh, make sure that you have the website for that, anyone who'd like to have a look at it. Uh, I'm president of the International Commission for the History and Theory of Historiography, and he retains that position, among many other positions at the moment. Uh, so despite his many responsibilities, I'm delighted that he's found time to come and talk to us, and this evening his title is uh, Historians Resisting Tyranny, a preliminary investigation. Thank you very much, Professor Patton. I'm very pleased to be here among you tonight. Um, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation to the Center uh, for the Trinity Center for Resistance Studies. My story that I will tell tonight started 45 years ago when together with my wife who happens to be here 
uh, when we were volunteers for Amnesty International, uh, for the International Secretariat of, Inter of Amnesty International, not in London, but in uh, dependency of the International Secretariat in Costa Rica, in Central America, in, in um, San Jose de Costa Rica. And there, as volunteers, we distributed the newsletter of Amnesty International to sections of Amnesty throughout Ibero-America. And uh, I noticed when we uh, produced that newsletter, uh, we, we produced Spanish translation and the Portuguese translation of the newsletter which was originally written by the researchers of Amnesty International in London. And when we reread these um, the proofs of these newsletters each month, I noticed as an historian, I was educated as an historian, that some of the victims that Amnesty International was working, was campaigning for, were historians. Uh, because sometimes there were historians who were, who landed in jail, or who were tortured, or who were exiled from their mother countries. And I said, hey, this is interesting. These are my colleagues. I'm an historian, a young historian in 19... I'm now talking about 1980, 1981, 1982. That's interesting. These are my colleagues, and they are prosecuted and persecuted in their countries. I will collect their cases. And that's how my work um, about the censorship of history started. Because I noticed this, and I said, well, um, other historians in Belgium, I'm, I come from Belgium originally. I have been in the Netherlands for more than 30 years. But now originally, I come from Belgium, from Ghent University. And I said, my colleagues do not know that, our, that there are historians who are prosecuted or persecuted in, in Guyana, in Afghanistan, in, uh, in Uruguay and, and scores of other countries, unless there are subscribers to Amnesty, International, Amnesty International's newsletters. And perhaps there should be a bridge between the community of historians on the one hand and the community of human rights organizations on the other. And that's how my thinking focused increasingly on the, the persecution of historians and the censorship of their work. I started collecting the cases that caught my eye. First, um, in that small office in San Jose de Costa Rica, and later, in, during my work at the University of Ghent and later the University of Groningen. And uh, I started, as uh, historians used to do, I started a database of censorship, cases of censorship of history. And I quickly noticed that historians were not only passive victims of dictatorships all over the world, but that from now, now and then, they also um, demonstrated forms of resistance. So uh, the main focus was censorship of history and persecution of historians, 
but they also quickly became interested in the ways that historians reacted to the pressures and the censorship upon them. And now, 45 years later, tonight, and these last months, I must add, I want to give you, present you a preliminary evaluation of all the ways in which historians have resisted pressures upon their work. My problem is I will concentrate on dictatorships and historians living in dictatorships or authoritarian regimes, totalitarian and authoritarian regimes. There are differences between these types of regimes, but I will not enter into that problem for the moment, because it's for the moment it's not important. And all of you can easily understand that dictators want to have a monopoly of views about the past and have always censored history. Where you see dictators, you see censorship, and including censorship of history. They do this directly via censorship of historical works or indirectly by intimidating the authors of that work. And these are the authors of, of that work are historians in the broad sense. Not only historians with a diploma, but all the people who seriously are engaged with the past and who produce um, works of history. They can also intimidate their audience and, of course, there is fallout when dictators censor and persecute and intimidate historians in the broad sense. People talk about this and are intimidated. What dictators do has a chilling effect, not only, on, of course, on the direct victims, on their colleagues, but also on society at large. So there is an effect on third parties as well. Now, I have tried to make a typology of the effects of the censorship of history um, uh, in, in general. And there are two types of effects of the censorship of history. Direct effects and indirect effects. When we say direct and in intended and direct effects are those effects that dictators intend and, and have a, a direct and immediate impact. Uh, I call this the Schroeder effect, the distortion effect, and the omission effect. The Schroeder effect is, of course, when you destroy books and, and destroy manuscripts. The distortion effect um, appears when you falsify history. The omission effect uh, appears, emerges, when you um, omit uh, omit. Uh, works when you uh, make them disappear, when you conceal um, uh, sources, when you um, lock up archives, etc. This is often an intended and direct effect of the censorship, or effect of censorship on history. Indirectly, 
you have an, a, a number of side effects. A corrupting effect, the, the integrity of history, when you censor, the uh, integrity of history is disappearing. You corrupt sources or you corrupt manuscripts, you, you distort the content. You have a chilling effect of which I uh, talked to you uh, a second ago on those who are writing books, are teaching students, but also on third parties. The chilling, the ripples of censorship go further than the direct targets. You have an elimination effect because you can, and this is happening, you can kill. Instead of censoring books, you can kill those who produce these books. And on the website of the Network of Concerned Historians, there is a list, a memorial, dedicated to all the historians in the broad sense who have been killed, um, uh, including for their efforts to produce uh, history with integrity. An elimination effect and uh, the, perhaps the worst effect in the long range is a sterility effect. When you censure history, everything becomes sterile and everything becomes prescribed, predictable. The surprise of science, of scholarship, disappears. Okay, this is straightforward, I think, and not that difficult to grasp. But censorship in a dictatorial context has also indirect effects and unintended, direct and indirect effects. A backfire effect, what they call in the um, in media studies, they call this the Barbara Streisand effect. This is an effect when you uh, put a taboo on a subject, people start to get curious to know what the taboo is about. That is the backfire effect. You, instead of um, eliminating curiosity, you create it by censorship. Censorship has that uh, effect, that side effect, unintended, of arousing curiosity in the topic, that, the very topic that is censored. People start resisting, uh, historians and students of history start, when, when they feel censorship, some of them try to resist that censorship. There is also an arousal of solidarity among those who are suppressed and censored and persecuted, a kind of uh, solidarity of the underdog, or to use the words of the Czech philosopher, uh, philosopher of history, Jan Patoshka, the solidarity of the shaken, of the dissidents, the, the uh, solidarity that uh, is born because you are all in the same uh, in the same boat. A substitution effect, I will talk about this later. A rescue effect, we, we, you want to rescue manuscripts, you want to rescue um, um, works of history uh, in their original state, 
you want to rescue heritage, all the sources, the infrastructure, the historical infrastructure in danger of destruction or distortion arouses a will to, to rescue it. The rescue effect, restitution effect is very similar and a survival effect. You want the original history to survive. I will come back to several of these effects uh, during my lecture. On the, in the long run, in an indirect way, censorship has also um, um, bigger impacts because you start realizing that when history is corrupted, you start asking questions about the integrity of history, the incorruptibility of your profession, of your discipline. And this is happening a lot in these repressive context that people start thinking about in the moral um, context of their profession. A memory effect, and this lecture is part of the memory effect, each time we talk about resistance to censorship, you tell stories about resistance and, and that keep alive these stories and you, I, I, I can tell them to you and you tell them to the next generation. And therefore, a chain of memory um, is brought into being. Sometimes it has a therapeutic effect when you hear these stories of resistance and you say, I'm not alone. People like me are victims in similar ways as I am. And a preventive effect is, of course, the ultimate goal of, of many of these efforts that you try to prevent history from being abused in the future. Okay, this is, I have uh, explained this in a little bit in detail, all this typology of effects in order to get you accustomed a little bit to the topic of tonight. My questions tonight will be, how, if historians, some historians, resisted dictatorship, how did they do this? What did they do when they uh, resisted uh, the pressure upon them? That is my first question. And my second question is more evaluative, is more speculative as well. Has it been all worth it? Has all the, the mass of resistance that historians have engendered when they were faced with tyrannical power, has it been worth it? I will try, I will approach this question. Of course, I will not answer it with the perfect certainty that is not uh, in my hands. Uh, but I will try to speculate a little bit about this more difficult general question. My framework is uh, um, globally, I start from hundreds of cases from all over the world, 170 countries. I collected, since my Costa Rica time, cases of censorship, also of resistance in, in uh, almost all countries of the world. And the annual reports of the Network of Concerned Historians um, um, contain summaries of these cases since 1995. But I will 
speak about the period since the Second World War in a global perspective. I will speak about historians qua historians. But of course, historians are not only professionals or practitioners of history, they are also people who are engaged in other ways. For example, as deans, as chairs of, of study centers, as rectors, as presidents of universities, as journalists, as human rights activists. Many uh, historians have been engaged in non-professional ways, I will exclude their resistance in these non-professional sectors. And I will concentrate on the resistance of historians in the area of their discipline and their profession, not in their other roles. But I will include, for comparative purposes, very briefly, resistance of historians in democracies, to see the differences with the resistance of historians <coughs> in dictatorships. I will do this briefly, but I, I will compare both very different contexts. And I am sorry to say I will not give examples. I, the, my analysis and my evaluation are based on hundreds of examples of resistance to the censorship of history, but I will not delve into them here. Um, this can be disappointing for you, especially when you were looking for a good tree tonight and hear a, a, a few interesting stories. There are. There are many moving stories. I will not tell them. So please, if you say, then go away, kick me out of the room, and I will come back via the rear window and continue. But um, I have um, described many of these examples in my latest books, in my latest book, Crimes Against History, which was indeed uh, uh, published four years ago. Okay. Now, um, resistance of historians against the distortion of their discipline in dictatorships. Historians have deployed an arsenal of ways in which they resist pressure upon them. I call this repertoires. I'm not the first. This is a, a word from, from a sociologist. A repertoire of resistance. And I have made here a tableau of repertoires of resistance. Do not try to read it. You can take a picture, of course, of this slide, but do not try to read everything. The important thing of this tableau and the next, which does the same for repertoires of resistance in democracies, is that you get the feel of what I mean with the phenomenon, when we study the phenomenon of resistance of historians vis-a-vis the tyrannical power. And I distinguish um, four different layers of resistance and dictatorships. Resistance in prison, because many historians in dictatorships who resist the system land in jail. Um, and um, you can resist from prison. 
then you have a very broad category, private resistance outside prison. Resistance that is done in a small circle, not in public, private uh, resistance. And private, this means uh, you personally, in your family, your circle of friends, perhaps in a small discussion club, but not really public. Because that is the third layer, public resistance outside prison. And then the fourth layer is the solidarity from outside the dictatorship, with those inside. Okay, briefly, resistance from prison, and I will return to this in my evaluation within 10 minutes or so, is when you read, write, or teach history in prison. This, this has happened a lot. I, I can, uh, I have, have collected stories, perhaps 30 or 40, uh, anecdotes of historians who were in prison and who either wrote history books or taught their fellow inmates history during their imprisonment. The private resistance outside prison, um, it starts with insider solidarity. I call this insider solidarity when individuals in trouble help each other without much further ado, they help each other. Tiny gestures, helping uh, colleagues, helping students. There, is, there are also many examples of these micro, micro forms of solidarity. Often, and this is one of my epistemological problems, often these micro forms of resistance when you help a colleague, are invisible. For researchers like me from the, ins, from the outside, and many years later, they are too small to be captured in sources or in stories. I will come back to that epistemological problem later. Um, and then there is a, an arsenal of things you can do in, as an individual outside prison, uh, as, as an act of resistance. You can smuggle a source abroad. You can teach history to one or two, three students in secret, secretly. Sometimes you debate historical issues with a few colleagues you trust. You can analyze records in, in secrecy. Some historians have shifted their research focus towards historical taboos. Usually, when there are official historical taboos, most historians change their uh, focus of research and go to safe areas of research, areas that are not politically sensitive. But a few are attracted via the Barbara Streisand effect to the taboos and change their work to, uh, towards the historical taboos. That's it, that's it. Historical knowledge. How you can resist at the level of historical knowledge. 
public resistance outside prison is, the word says it itself, public. So others notice it. Not only those you trust, but others you do not trust. It is, it is noted uh, by outsiders. And there we come at the level, the stage of ethical and moral action. And I make a distinction between ethical and moral, but I will do this later. When you, for example, when you expose historical myths uh, that legitimize tyrannical power, some have done this with big courage, or have, um, have tried to defend the principles of the profession and defended a notion of historical truth at odds with the official notion, or they organized public <coughs> commemorations, but unofficially, they have sued or tried to sue. Usually, this is symbolic action. They have tried to sue the leaders in power and even <coughs> diseased leaders. I can give examples, of course, of all these. All these, this is not a theoretical typology of, of repertoires, this is case based. I have, do not interrogate me too harshly. But in principle, I must be able to give you at least one example for each type of repertoire. Um, from the ethical and the moral level, you can switch to the legal level uh, and to political action. When you link your profession to democracy, when you write an open letter to the head of state, that is my, one of my current uh, bits of research is about, is called open letters in closed societies. What happens when, in my case, historians publish open letters, letters directed, for example, to the head of state, but meant to be read by a wide audience. What happens? What is in these open letters? To whom are they addressed? Uh, how they are received, etc. Okay, political action. Resistance after the fact is, or resistance with delay, is when um, the dictator tries to purge uh, all works of, of a certain author, and one copy survives the dictatorship and is being reprinted either in the underground press or after the dictatorship tumbled, uh, survived and is in published again. So works um, of historians that everybody thought, thought, thought that were lost reappear. One copy, two copies. There are some ca beautiful cases uh, of resistance after the fact. This is, of course, involuntary resistance. It was not predictable, but sometimes this happened, that the manuscript that, was, that everybody believed was lost re-emerges re during or after the dictatorship. Outside the solidarity, that's easy to understand. You can help, exiles can help to smuggle sources 
into the country where dictatorship reigns. You can, as an exile, you can establish societies, uh, presses, publishing companies, institutions in your host country in order to keep alive the historiography of your country, but then abroad. This is, um, in short, the repertoires of resistance against the distortion of history and dictation. Now the comparison with democracies. And you will see that these four layers disappear. Not the sub-layers, but resistance from prison does not really exist in democracies. Here you have it. Because usually, of course, there are sometimes there have been historians in, in prison in democracies, but usually that is not the case. When you, um, uh, when you practice your profession in a democracy, the natural habitat of the historian is not in prison. It is outside. And of course, you can be criticized. You can even be sued for defamation, sometimes in very rare cases for hate speech, in some countries for blasphemy, uh, uh, etc. But usually, prison, the, the, the tool of criminal law, um, is not a serious option in democracies. But there are several levels that correspond with these sub levels in uh, dictatorship. And of course, I, I made it as symmetrically as, symmetrically, sym, symmetrically as possible with uh, my uh, first tableau of repertoires. This uh, tableau of repertoires has the same sub-layers as the tableau for dictatorships. Historical knowledge, because even in democracies you can debunk myths, historical myths, historical disinformation. You can oppose distortions, serious distortions of history. For example, the very um, sensitive field is the denial of genocide. In, in uh, many democracies, this is a real problem. The denial of genocide and of atrocity crimes in the, uh, is on the increase, is rising. It's a, increasingly an online phenomenon, but it is a serious problem. Um, and opposing the denial of past genocide is a major uh, occupation for the engaged historian in democracy. Ethical and moral action can be uh, taken by historians in democracies like uh, uh, Ireland. When you teach professional ethics to raise awareness of responsible practice in the historical sector, in the historical field, you are contributing to a better, uh, um, a better uh, field, a, a, a more accurate and sincere field. So this is action uh, at the ethical and moral level that is important for the future of, of the profession and the discipline. Legal action uh, can be undertaken more easily in the in democracies than in dictatorships, of course, you can take action, for example, against uh, intrusive archives laws 
archives laws that are too secretive, that uh, have too many exceptions to the general rule of freedom of information. You can denounce laws that uh, limit archival access uh, excessively. You can denounce laws that prescribe certain historical views, the, the type of laws that we call memory laws. You can denounce other laws that produce chilling effects on the free expression of on the past. And the, the main culprit here is the defamation law. Defamation laws in many countries, if not most democratic countries, are too harsh and too expensive and have serious consequences also for historians, not only that, but also for historians. Legal action, political action, um, you can um, take, um, take action, denounce attempts to interfere with commissioned histories, officially commissioned histories. Or you, if history is commissioned by the government, for example, you can try to regulate the agreement with the government in a way that is beneficial for historical censorship. Um, I am involved in an um, official uh, history of the presence of the Netherlands in Afghanistan between 2001 and 2021. Uh, there is an official historical research about Dutch, the Dutch military and civil presence in Afghanistan in the, uh, the 20 years between 9-11 and the fall of Kabul in August of 2021. As a member of the academic um, supervisory commission, we try to negotiate with the, with, the, uh, with the government, with the ministries that are involved in that commissioning that are the commissioning entities trying to negotiate fair conditions for our historians. 20 researchers are involved in this. And we try to negotiate fair conditions for uh, work conditions, access to military archives, to secret archives, etc. Publication conditions, etc. This is not easy. Uh, political action. Uh, royalty oaths, refuse, refusing royalty declarations, royalty oaths is sometimes, think of the McCarthy era in the United States, um, for example, the United States democracy, but in the McCarthy era, era you had to take a loyalty oath or you could be prosecuted. Participating in, in countries in transition participating in mechanisms of emerging democracies, etc. You can also enter the field of symbolic reparation. Uh, for example, very interesting, something I collect also on the Network of Concerned Historians website. There is a, a page with links to uh, websites dedicated to persecuted historians. And I have now collected 20 or so. But once you start looking for websites that try to commemorate the work of historians who have been persecuted, you find, you find quite a lot of, of these.
go to the links page of the website of the Network for Concerned Stories. And finally, solidarity and protest. This is, uh, I think, self-explanatory. Uh, you can express solidarity with the historians who suffer in dictatorships, but also with some colleagues in democracies who are unjustly, if that is the case, of course, who are unjustly dismissed, unfairly dismissed, unjustly sued for defamation or otherwise. This is the repertoire of resistance uh, against the distortion of, his of history in democracies. Okay, now I am ready for my evaluation. Now you have an idea when, when I say resistance of historians against the distortion of the work, now you know in general what I mean. Now my evaluation consists of four parts. I will say something about the authors of uh, resistance, the historians, or their uh, or people who have acted or behaved as historians. I will say something about the content, about their audience, about their reasons, the reasons to resist, and finally, I will try to, to answer the bigger question, was it all worth it? The impact of resistance. First, the actors of resistance. The historians, in the broad sense. Not only those with the diploma. I repeat this. When you, when you study the resistance of historians and you limit yourself with those with an official diploma of bachelor of, or master or doctor uh, in history, then you will miss a lot of interesting cases. I can tell you. I, I can assure you. Because uh, in many countries, and in fact, it's a global phenomenon. History is too important to be left to professional historians. Many accomplished journalists or writers have immersed themselves in historical subjects and written very interesting books about it, lectured about this, without having that professional qualification. So, please, um, I'm not only talking about the historian's appellation contrôlée. I'm talking about all those who are perceived as contributing to the historical field. So my definition is wide. I will speak, sometimes I call them history producers, in order to make the difference. But, okay. Resistance from prison. When you analyze the cases, you, I, there is one clear conclusion. Almost, mm, almost never, the resistance is intentional when you are in prison. What you do is you try to kill time in prison and therefore if there is a library, if at all, if you have a prison library, you start reading um, uh, works of history in order to beat time. Time is your worst enemy in prison. Or uh, as some people have done in, in uh, under dictatorships, you start to follow um, courses of history, written courses, postal courses of history. In, under apartheid South Africa, 
this has happened with, with some A and C um, um, uh, members who were in, in, uh, in prison on, on Robin Island. This has happened in Cuba uh, among uh, the followers of Fidel Castro. This has happened in Vietnam um, when the communists and the French colonial regime were put in prison, etc. Et but usually, writing or teaching history in prison is a survival strategy. It's a way to usefully uh, beat time, uh, to make sense, to make, to have, to give, to endow your dull existence with some meaning. And the resistance can be a side effect, often unintended and delayed. And sometimes manuscripts are smuggled out of prison and then published and become bestsellers. For example, in June, uh, an historian uh, from Mexico died, um, and uh, he wrote, he has written a bestseller about the Mexican Revolution in jail, in Mexico in the 60s and 70s. It was smuggled out of prison that history, Marxist, Trotskyist history of the Mexican Revolution, La Revolución Interrumpida, the Interrupted Revolution, um, and it became an instant bestseller. In Mexico, this was possible in the 70s. That was not a full-fledged dictatorship. It was only a, a weak, a fragile democracy. Only. Um, but it, the manuscript could be published. And it has been a bestseller from the start and remained a bestseller. In seven or eight editions, I believe. And... Um, um, that is an, an example of how a work that was born in, in prison um, became very famous. Usually, the resistance effect is a sign. Private resistance is often invisible. I told you already, this is an epistemological problem. You notice it everywhere, but you have to close read the sources in order to, to, to discover it. And even then, most of these small private gestures of resistance are invisible forever. I will come back to this important problem. Public resistance, of course, is easier to a bit easier to, to research, to investigate, because it's public. And if it is public, then it can be diverged and reach an historian 30 or 40 years later, uh, even if most of the time in translation.